Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Once you once you start going 
to matches on more than just a sort of a, a three, four, five times a season basis. It's, uh, you know, it takes you over. And it was, um, yeah, there are days when I wish it hadn't happened. <laughs> but, but, um, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, there's no, there's no, there's no, uh, yeah, there's no sixth generation family line linking me to White Hart Lane. Um, but, uh, so I don't, I, I don't sit around with, um, with my dad and moan about it or anything like that. It's, um, it's just me. Well, for me, it is my dad's fault, but we've we've both supported the club from afar in recent years. He used to be a season ticket holder, but that's something I I wrote about in length uh, for the next issue of the uh, Fighting Cock fanzine, so I don't want to spoil that. Is is that um, just a a quick teaser? Is that that just about about how your dad's attitude has changed since giving up his season ticket, or...? Is it your attitude? No, the the articles are, the articles about how I fell in love with Tottenham because it's something that people oh. often ask. Because obviously the the way I sound, the way I am, and the fact that I tweet just about as much as about rugby league as I do with uh, with football, people tend to to question yeah. why I support the club as strongly as I do. Um, so it's just to explain that really, because I'm I'm in the unique position where half my family are from the West Indies and half my family are from India. So they both came over to the country at a very different time and. Obviously, there's no, as you say, sixth-generation story with me with Tottenham because my generations of my family don't go back that far in this country. So um, it's something my dad passed down to me uh, from his dad when they settled in, in the area when they came over. But it's, it's I remember being a kid and seeing him. Uh, he never used to see him on a weekend because he used to drive back to London and then come back home again and then uh, used to tell whether or not Tottenham had won or not by how hard he slammed the door. <laughs> So it was, um, it was one of those things that I, it intrigued me when I was younger. And then when I started getting taken to games when we played Leeds away and whatnot, being, I've never felt more at home than being an away fan in my own city. And uh, it's just one of those things that's odd, but it feels nice. But, uh, I'm sure if you, if you buy the, the copy of that fanzine that they, they lovingly put together over there, then uh, you'll be able to oh, they hopefully read all about it. Oh, they do a great job there. I mean, like the um, the content's great, but the design of it's. I mean, I remember when they were um, when they're talking about putting it together. You're always skeptical with fanzines because you have that sort of image in your mind of, of like the early '90s. You know, it might as well a lot of it might as well have been written on the back of a poster or something. But you know, it's a really high quality product. It's um, it's fantastic. I, I, uh, yeah, full of admiration for that. Yeah, it's not three handwritten sheets of A4 stapled together down the side. Exactly, it's, like, it's, properly, it's a bit more than properly done. Well, it's how it should be though, because it's got some. I mean, some of the people writing there are worth that design. I mean, you know, you've got to, um, you know, you've got to, you've got to give something that you know people will. Something that doesn't look like it. it's just being printed off the internet, basically. Um, it's, it's always nice. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, talking about Spurs more in a, in a recent context, um, how did you think the summer went? How did you think Pochettino set in so far? The first games of the season. What's your impression been of late? Um, I think, you know, I, I spent most of the summer just happy that Sherwood was gone more than happy that Pochettino had arrived. I, 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 um, it was only after after that last season ended that I realised just how disaffected I'd become with it because, and you know, if you you turn up, it, it's really hard to separate the touchline from the pitch, um, you know, because of obviously sort of how modern football is and, and how, um, how the personality of a manager affects things. Um, so Pochettino's arrival was, was refreshing, but it also, I mean, what, what, from from what little we've seen, so it's, it's worth remembering that you know the sample size is, is still really small. But um, it's nice to see Tottenham playing with um, like a, a 
clear intention um, and with a sort of, you know, a, a discernible pattern. Um, under the show, it, it, and, and sadly at times towards the end under the disperse, it, it, there was no obvious, um, I don't know, there, 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 there was a real absence of structure. And Pochettino, I mean, even though, okay, the last game, uh, it didn't go very well, but you could see what they were trying to do. You could see you could see the press, you could see the intention to win the ball back as quickly as possible, to get the ball from you know, midfield, uh, from, from the deeper areas of the pitch, through the attacking line as quickly as possible. Um, you know, they may not be great at it yet, but you can see where it's going. And I, you know, the only thing I really ask from the side is that, you know, there's, there's some, there's some sense of progress. Or there's some, you know, you, you go, you watch them and you think, okay, well, you know, this, this, this team is moving towards from point A to point B in the future. Um, and you can definitely see that. I mean, QPR is great and entertaining. It was the most fun I've had watching Tottenham in about 18 months, I think. Um, and I think Liverpool was a little bit too soon. I think you'd, you'd want the side to be six months into um, learning Pochettino's structure and, and having the experience of how and when to use it and you know how to um, slightly alter it against different a, a different style of opponent. Um, and it's just it, you know it, it's it's just happier. Um, it's a really general way of describing it, but it just. It seems okay. It's fresher and has, you know, has at least some sense that someone knows what they're doing, <laughs> which is just good. Which is nice. It's nice to see. Um, I don't know how it will go, but you know, I'm, I, it's um, it's fine. Were you in the summer um, when we were looking for a new manager? Was was Pochettino somebody you were you was on your radar? Somebody personally you wanted to see come into the club? Um, not really. I um. Well, no, I, I wasn't. I, I'd seen what he'd, he'd done at Southampton, and I really liked it. And there was a caveat there because, he, well, obviously Southampton dropped away pretty badly towards the end, and lost twice against the Tim Sherwood side, for example. Um, but he, I, I, I don't know. I, I've kind of, I think I've grown beyond the stage of of thinking manager X is going to be perfect for club Y because it just doesn't really work out like that. Um, I just wanted to see, my only ambition was to see someone come in and Levy being, you know, having some faith in, 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 in having the balls to back his decision for the long term. That's all I wanted to see. I mean, you know, within reason, you just, a younger manager, you know, someone with a, um, uh, a ambitious attacking philosophy and, you know, someone who would, who wouldn't just keep buying players and, and, and rely on, you know, a, a transfer budget, which, you know, it doesn't really exist. Someone who's actually going to coach. And so he, he ticked a lot of boxes. And so, you know, you know, it was, um, I was cautiously optimistic when he was appointed and, you know, there's no reason not to be. I mean, there wasn't, there weren't really any other obvious targets and there wasn't a, an obvious candidate out there who you thought, yes, he would be a great, great fit for Tottenham. Um, I, I think Van Howe would have been a disaster. Um, because you, you mix. I mean, and not just because of you know what was kind of going on at Man United or you know conversely how well he did at the World Cup, but because his personality just doesn't fit where Tottenham are in the Premier League hierarchy. Tottenham are a fourth, fifth, sixth place club, and he is um, he in his own mind he belongs in a, a managerial class all of its own. <laughs> I just, you know I, I don't think that would have gone particularly well. If I had to press you for a name, um, who would you have said in the summer? 
other than Pochettino. Other than Pochettino, yeah, who who would who would have been your ideal appointment? It, it, staying within the realms of possibility. I mean, there 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 were parallels um, between um, there are parallels between Tottenham and Ajax. Um, so there was a, you know, I, I didn't really hate the idea of Frank de Boer. I, I think you know what he's managed to do, whilst I mean he, he won he won three Eredivisie titles in a row while still losing players and influential players. Um, and I think you know it's not quite the same, and you know Tottenham aren't quite in the same position that Ajax are in Holland, but there's a there's a little bit of um, a similarity there, and um, you know. Uh, I liked, in principle, what he could do. I mean, he, he politicked a little bit for the job in the end, and it, it was a little bit sour, and he was a bit too vocal and a bit too eager to, to progress and move away from Ajax, which, you know, if you think about it, if you, if you take that situation and put it three years down the line, you know, how, how would he have behaved if a club bigger than Tottenham would have wanted him? Um, but uh, I don't know, I, 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 it's kind of a marker of what, you know, what was out there. I don't think there is an ideal manager for Tottenham because... I, I don't think we really know what Tottenham are at the moment. They're aside, um, still a couple of years away from a new stadium with a, 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 a talented squad of players who, who are underdeveloped, um, who haven't been, you know, uh, used to the, the full capabilities. So you got to, you got to, you got to really see what they are before you, we match them up with the manager. That's a very democratic way of answering that question. Um, moving on, we've, <laughs> <laughs> we've got. Um, We've got Sunderland coming up, and I spoke to Gareth again from Wise Men City. Well, welcome back to Roller Roof, Gareth. Um, hopefully you're a bit happier this time than you were previously. Yeah, a little bit. Still waiting for the, the first win this season. But um, we didn't look like we'd be in the Premier League last time we spoke, so, yeah, but uh, sort of got to be a bit more positive than last time. Yeah, um, how did the summer go then, was it? Did you were you happy with people you brought in and people went out and everything? Um, I mean, the transfer window is just crazy anyway. I mean, you know, we we sort of were steady throughout, um, sort of building awards like deadline day seems to now dominate everything. It's almost as if if you don't sign the right player on deadline day, then the rest of the transfers com- transfer windows seems to be completely irrelevant to some people. It's you know, it's it's like waking up on Christmas Day without a present if you don't sign anyone to some people. So, you know, I was quite I was quite pleased, but I think um, you know we kind of replaced sort of like for like, but you know maybe hopefully some upgrades in some areas. Um, brought in nine players in total, which seems quite a lot, but we lost uh, quite a few. Um, Resigned a few loanees as well. Yeah, um, we well we lost, we well we lost off the top of my head. I couldn't tell you, but loan obviously Barini, Chilutska, um, you know DK they went who never really kicked the ball. Um, Gardner, Colback obviously, um, Alonso the left back. Was the, the left back as well, wasn't it? Yeah, Alonso went. Yeah, um, Bardsley went. It was um, quite an odd one because you had quite a few big transfer stories. I mean, Callback was the first one. You released quite an, an angry statement about that one. And then you had <laughs> Barini turned into a, a bit of a saga. Yeah, and, um, <laughs> a massive saga. Um, I mean, Callback, you know, it's it's polarised because of the situation. You know, it's, it makes it worse than it actually should be. I mean, 
he's okay. You know, he's we've we brought Gomez in, who's a similar sort of player, and he's, you know, I would say he's on a par. Um, but the way people obviously, when you obviously got moving to Newcastle, and then you know their PR goes into overdrive um, to try and sort of remind everybody that he's a Newcastle fan, and you know, Pardew recently saying stuff like he's always been a a Newcastle United player and stuff like that, which is ridiculous because he's been at Sunderland since he was a boy. So, um, yeah, that was a, a little bit disappointing that he went to Newcastle. I think it was quite complicated. I think there was a bit of a hangover from the previous director of football who didn't really fancy him um, and as a result didn't really give him um, what he wanted um, and that kind of soured the taste in his mouth. So as a result, he wasn't really that keen on staying um, and Lee Congerton came in, the other, the new sporting director, as he's known. And Gus Poyet obviously couldn't quite turn it around. I mean, it's a, it's a, the thing about the callback thing is it's such a, you know, to move across. Um, you know, the kind of player that he is. You know, he's not really a, an impact player in a game, so he kind of keeps things ticking over. He's neat and tidy, nothing spectacular. Um, so it's, it's going to be difficult for him to settle, but he seems to have, you know, seems to have done all right since he's gone there. Actually, to be fair, um, and you know, I think they're a bit more willing to accept it because you know they've created this whole illusion about him being this the ginger peel, or that's what they're calling him, which is absolutely ludicrous. And then he got in the England squad, which created a you know a big hoo ha because he's you know Catamol, who's been excellent for last year. You know, was highly influential back end of last season as well for Sunderland. Um, Colback did okay, but Catamol was definitely the driving force now midfield. And then he goes to Newcastle and plays two games and gets in the England squad. Um, Do you think playing for Sunderland's actually a catalyst in that? Do you reckon? Because you're seen as perhaps an, an unfashionable club, it's, it's, it went against him at all. I don't know um, because Fraser Campbell got a call up. Um, when he barely he scored about two goals in a year, so I don't know. Um, I mean, there'll be conspiracy theories and stuff. Um, I think you know maybe he would have got in the England squad if um, he'd still been in Sunderland. It might have been on the agenda, so I don't know. Um, I like to think it wasn't an issue, but we had the obviously Darren Bent, who you know well. We had the issue with him where. Um, Capello told him to leave Sunderland um, to go to a club where somewhere else where he'd, I don't know, he'd automatically get picked for England, which he went to Villa and then he got in the England squad more regularly, which was strange. Um, From the outside looking in, Villa's not really a, at the moment, you're not too dissimilar a club because they've been, they've been right down there the past few seasons as well. Correct, yeah, I mean... It wasn't. It was a bit of a strange one. Maybe it was just because it's it's easier. For, it was easier for Capello to to get to Villa Park than it it was for him to get to Sunderland. Um, but I think that seems to be the thing. I mean, Roy Hodgson, I think, has been to Sunderland once, maybe. Um, me, I don't even know if he's been at all. Um, there are a couple of clubs I was I read the other day. He's he's very rarely been to the northeast, either yourselves or Newcastle, and I think he's never. Been to Swansea. I think that's one one ground he's never been to watch a game in. Which, given that they've got quite a few English players there and quite a few on form English players, it's it's quite appalling, really. Yeah, I mean the the fact that he hasn't been to Swansea is is an absolute joke. When you've got, I mean Routledge and Dyer who've been doing pretty well. 
um, for for about eighteen months. I know Dyer sort of had a sort of in and out spell, but there's a Dyer at his peak definitely should have been given an opportunity. Um, but it's it's strange. Um, sort of there's a bit of a disconnect I think between a lot of the Sunderland support and the the England setup really. Um, and I think there's there's perhaps probably the case for a lot of teams. Um, you know, if you're not one of the perceived trendy clubs or whatever, then the likelihood is you, they're not going to bother with you. So, yeah, I mean, there's positives in that because if your player doesn't get selected and he's going to be one of your best players, if he goes, he's not going to get injured. So, I mean, that that's something. But for the players, you know, you, certain players, you, I mean, we've had various discussions with about Catamore with various people. I mean, we've watched Catamore. He's been in Sunderland for, you know, for a long time now, four or five years. And, you know, to see his development, um, you know, as a, as a player has been great to watch. Um, the, the turnaround in the last two years has been fantastic and he's an excellent player now. And it's a real shame that he's not going to get an opportunity based on some sort of perception that's being created about his, you know, his mentality or his discipline, which really is a, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's falsehood, you know, it doesn't really exist. I mean, he got sent off once last season. Um, Fabian Delph actually picked up more bookings last season than Lee Catamore. Um, but, you know, there was a journalist last night on Twitter sort of making comments about Fabian Delph having a Catamore. Um, which is quite bizarre. It's just in this kind of it perpetuates the myth about is, is the it, player. Is it? Yeah. Is it? Is it a case where his reputation's preceded him then with Catamol? I've always argued it's a bit of a catch twenty two with Catamol because you know the reputation's being created um, by a perception that he gets all of these um, cards, um, but then he gets booked more because he's the kind of player who gets booked. So he's he's more harshly punished, and as a result, um, you know the, these sort of things pile up. So some of the stuff I've seen him get booked and sent off for have been silly. I mean, I've never seen him get sent off for a, a horrific tackle or anything like that. Um, he's been sort of sent off for, for you know shouting at the referee. He's been sent off for a couple of buttons, um, a few times, and that's about it, really. Um, but the last sort of like last year he got sent off once against Hull um, and that's it really in the last sort of two years um, so yeah I don't, I don't know um, I think people think he's is a certain way and the media perception of a player can affect things so yeah well less about England anyway because that's just depressing as it is even though they were they were alright the other night and <laughs> the players you, out of the nine players you brought in who do you think is Probably your best edition because you've you've got in a couple of, of decent names. There. I mean, Jack Rodwell is um, is one that probably sticks out the most, and then the likes of Will Buckley from the Championship, who's been doing well for years. So, is, is there anyone who in the the game so far has really stuck out? Rodwell, um, he started his first game in the Premier League um, at West Brom since. Well, it must have been about five games in the last season because the last time he started a Premier League game was the day that the Canio had sacked. So that's like a year. And he looks it looks like he hasn't played in the Premier League for a year at the moment. He's got good qualities and he's, he's just trying to feel his way back into it and it's going to take him time to, to get into it. 
Um, but you know that was a great signing. Um, he was excellent at Everton, um, and you know didn't really get the chance at City like many players who move there don't. Um, but Lee was an interesting one. He'd been chasing him for a long time, um, and he wanted to get him in January, and he couldn't do it. Um, but he he sort of had mixed. Up. I mean. So did all right as a sub against West Brom. Had an excellent game against Manchester United, which was on Sky, so some people might have seen it. Um, I think the the most interesting signing is definitely um, Ricky Alvarez, who we brought in from Inter Milan. Who, you know, he's speak to one South American football expert, and he says he's absolutely garbage. And he speak to another one, and he says, "Oh, he could be, you know, the key to unlock the doors that you need." So he's definitely going to be a Marmite player. But he's a bit exotic, isn't he? So people sort of he was at them. Was it Inter, Inter Milan previously? Wasn't yeah, it? he was at Inter. Um, I can't remember. I think he joined them from Sarsfield. I can't remember. Um, but he sort of joined them up four years ago under a lot of sort of um, speculate, like sort of media spotlight about how great he's going to be. He was this wonder kid, and he didn't really kick on. Um, so he's been brought in. Um, with Gomez. We brought in who was solid. Pantillion brought him as a as a keeper to challenge Minoni. Um left back, which has been a problem for us um for about four years. We brought in Van Anholt from Chelsea, who looks like he's quite good going forward, but isn't exactly um clever defensively. Um Billy Jones from West Brom Chalvian, who's a solid enough signing. Santiago Virginia, who we had on loan last season, has come back again on loan. Um, and so, we, I mean, we've got options, you know, especially in those forward areas now. I know the Barini thing was the sort of the story for us over the summer. What you exactly know? happened then? Because he was, he was, looked like he was going to come. He seemed to have a decent understanding. He seemed to enjoy himself there last season. Um and there was interest from other clubs as well. Do you know exactly what it was? Was it a, just a purely a money thing? Um, I don't think it was, no. Um, I think it was more to do with, you know, maybe he feels as though he's had five clubs and he's 23 years old um, and he wants to either settle down at a, a bigger club or he, if he's going to move, he wants the option of being able to to move on for a release. I think that was one of the issues with the QBR contract. He wanted a release clause. So somebody came in from in the summer, they could trigger that and take him. Um, he, he feels as though he can play at a top club because um, he's very professional, very confident. Um, speak, people you speak to at the club, you know, spoke very highly even from a professionalism perspective. Um, so... I think it's just an ambition thing. I think he just wanted to, you know, try and do the best thing possible for his career. And he feels as though at the moment that's still Liverpool. So, you know, fair enough if he wants to compete for a first team place. So there's all the sort of disrespect towards him by people saying, oh, you're going to rot in the reserves and people are a bit bitter about it. But, you know, it's his career. And if, you know, I think that's a good thing in a player if he wants to, you know, stay there and try and fight and get into the team. It shows he's confident. Um, and it shows he's got confidence in his own ability and he thinks he's good enough. So, you know, Barini did well for us last season. He was very good from November onwards. Wasn't his goals. I know people have spoken about all you know, his goals are important, but he only scored five from open play. So he, did, he wasn't exactly prolific. 
um, but it was more the way he fitted in the system that was important. And he was very good in that from that left hand side. Um, but you know, good luck to him. I hope he does. You know, break into the Liverpool team because you know he was always. You know, from what I've heard, even when we were in the doldrums around the time we, when, we, when I spoke to you last, he was one of the only ones who was, um, you know, trying to trying to rectify things, putting in the extra hours and whatnot. So, you know, good luck, dude. What's uh, this is going to be quite a, a broad question, but from the outside looking in, the the narrative with Sunderland seems to be fairly similar season after season and with different managers. It's almost, I think we've said before, you've fairly similar to Tottenham in that your turnover in manager and players is fairly consistently high. Mm. Um, it's not like you... It doesn't ever seem that you're without funds. You always seem to get players when you need them. And it's not like you haven't been spending £10 million here and there when you need to. It's not a, a matter of penny pinching, but how come you seem to just manage to go from one landmine to the next rather than actually putting your feet in and actually you know, kicking on a little bit? Um, I've no idea. I mean, I think maybe it's it's been a combination of different things. Um, right managers at the wrong time, wrong managers at the right time. Um, you know, it goes back to Peter Reid when we were in a position. We he wanted to strengthen before Christmas, um, and the chairman at the time wouldn't give the money to strengthen at the time. I don't know if you remember, but. Um, when Sunderland got first got promoted to the Premier League in well the second time got promoted to the Premier League in nineteen ninety nine, um, yeah. we we were actually second at Christmas, and we were third at Christmas the following year. We finished seventh those two seasons, and Reed wanted money to kick on. Um, I think we built a, an extension in the stadium instead of buying players. And, but, you know, Reed was questionable with the way he spent his money anyway. I mean, he, he bought some absolute shockers um, with, for a lot of money. Lillian Laslan, Paul Andre Floor, people like that. So the money's been there to spend, and that goes right through me. And you had Roy Keane, who just was like a constant, you know, buying loads of players when we were in the championship. And then when we got promoted, he bought more players um, for inflated fees. You know, paid £5 million for Fraser Campbell, and he'd been on loan at, at Tottenham that year. Um, we paid five million for Keane Richardson, um, and then obviously when Keane went, we had Bruce. And Bruce, I mean, it's it's his pattern, his managerial pattern is the same everywhere. He does quite well, gets money to spend, and just buys loads of players for a lot of money. And then things seem to tail off, and he can't really sort of work out why, um, and he struggles to to rectify the situation. So money's been there. And I think the situation is now, I think we finally got the right manager in Poyet. But the issue is we've had our sort of splurge when we got back in the Premier League. And, you know, now with the financial fair play and stuff, we're balancing the books from, from you know, previous spends. So from, where, from what Keane spent and, and from what, from Bruce spent. So, yeah, I mean, with our outlays aren't massive. I mean, yeah, we spent 10 million on Rodwell, but the, the fees we paid for the other players, I mean, a lot of them were free transfers or sort of loans. So it's, I don't know, I, you know, the answer to the question, though, I mean, I've just got no idea. Like, I, it's just Sunderland, I think. It just won't, <laughs> it, I mean, the thing is, we've been relatively successful. We, like, recently, I mean, this is our best, you know, running the top flight post war. Um, currently so I mean 
when we had our two best finishes in the last sort of since the war in the last sort of 15 years and we finished seventh twice as I mentioned earlier so I mean these are kind of the high times for Sunderland you see so but we're still seeing the battle against relegation and trying to implore to any possible opportunity but that that's what makes it interesting I guess you see this is a thing this is a conversation we've had previously um about enjoyment in the game um do you do you enjoy it more being in the Premier League and picking up say a handful of wins and managing to stay in or do you prefer it when you're in the championship and you're you're mounting title challenges and you're actually you're winning more games and the you know it's from winning brings enjoyment mm. so is it, do, you, do you prefer it up here where you're more likely to struggle or, or down there where perhaps the support's a little bit more free the pressure's off a bit more it's it's slightly more fun um well having sort of experienced a lot of the Premier League and then a lot of the, the Championship or whatever it was called. Um, it, it varies. I mean, under Mick McCarthy in the Championship, I mean, we won the league, but we got relegated with 15 points following season. But, you know, the crowds didn't come back. Um, but, you know, we, we got relegated with 19 points and that basically killed about 10,000 of our support who didn't come back again. Under McCarthy, it was a bit dour and we got promoted. I don't know. I mean, enjoyment in in football. I think I think it's you know for for a team, the support of a team like Sunderland for me personally, it's not even so much the winning and losing. It's it's moments that you kind of look back on, um, and you know there's you know you can win you can win games, you can lose games, but you know great moments in games. It in the, like where heroes are made. I think it's Sunderland and. Because we're not, you know, we don't really challenge I me. Mean, obviously, we got to the the Capital One Cup final last season, which was amazing. Um, the cup run, like when Bardsley scored against Manchester United or Trafford, like I just never ever forget it. And it wasn't even a winning goal. So in the game, because obviously uh, Hernandez scored, and then it went to penalties. Um, but yeah, I think for me, it's not really the the wins or whatever. It's just um, it's the moments. Um, that special, like, and great nights or, you know, afternoons or, you know, stories that go around support from the club. And yeah. That's quite that special. It worth it in the end. Yeah, it does. I mean, it, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, but you would get, it is a bit boring if you win every week. Like, let's be honest. I mean, if you're not going to win anything and you sort of, you finish sixth or whatever, I don't know. It's nice and that, but I mean, I'd I'd love to see if Sunderland got in the Europa League. I'd be delighted. I know a lot of people say it's like a second-rate competition, and you know, but we've been in Europe for like three games in our history. So to get in the Europe and experience that, and I'd be absolutely furious if a manager we got there and a manager decided to play, you know, a week inside. Or I remember when Stoke played Valencia in a quarter-final or something. He played, you know, plays you who signed for two years previous and never kicked the ball, and then all of a sudden they're popping up playing a quarter-final of a, a European Cup tie, and it's, I'd be infuriating as a supporter because I'd, I'd love to think, I know money governs things, and I'd, lo- I'd love to think if we ever got in that position, but those are the things that I you know, enjoy and appreciate about being a Sunderland supporter, and the occasional you know, moment of glory sandwich between the frequent despair is kind of, I guess it makes the... The, the glorious moments of it sweeter. Well, I've said it previously that I'd never want Tottenham to go through a, 
like a 20-year stage like Manchester United did under Fergie because I think that just warps and sanitises your support so much that your your expectation levels are at such a strange level that the enjoyment has to leave some... I mean, surely you're never going to get bored of winning titles every year, but when, when it stops and when it you know when it doesn't happen, then it, it just must be odd because if you look at them now, their supporters don't know what to do. I mean, me personally, I'm, I'm, I turned 22 last week... And this is the first time in my life that Manchester United have been in properly shit. So it's, it's a very odd experience. And, and I never want Tottenham to do that. I mean, the fact that we've won a cup for what once in a decade every now and then, we, every you know, every decade we win something, that's that's good enough for me. I enjoy that. That's one thing to hold on to. And as you say, it is the, the memories that help. So what, what about you? Would you would you happily turn Sunderland if, if say, a, a, a shake came in tomorrow and offered you billions to turn you into the next city, would you would you want it to happen? That's a good question. Um oh, I don't know. <laughs> it's you you kinda like it. I mean to see someone in the Champions League or something like that would be amazing. Um it would just be you know fantastic but I don't know. I, I, I guess the best people to ask, I mean when you've spoken to one city fans, what do they say? Have they said that they were enjoying it, or they said they kind of wish it never happened? Or because, I mean, they were in the league. Well, it's League One playoff final when Sunderland were in the Championship playoff final. So about nineteen ninety eight. Well, they've um, they they kind of said that there's no place for morality in football, so they'll take it when it's there, essentially. Which I think is it's pretty easy to say when it's happened to you. But I, I've always took the position that I wouldn't want it happening at Tottenham. I mean, Tottenham are, you know, Tottenham are very different to Sunderland. I think, like, in, in modern terms, I think Tottenham are, you know, a, a big club. I think Sunderland are a, you know, a, a big club in some respects, but on the pitch, we're not. Um, so, I think Tottenham, you know, I think that you've been in the Champions League and stuff like that, and that's why the, mo- the money comes in to bring that, really, doesn't it? So, you, you, I mean, you've had Van der Vaart and... Modric and people like that in recent times. Um, you know, great players. Larissa you've got at the moment, fantastic players. It's possible for Tottenham to to bring those players in without that massive financial input. The only way that Sunderland are ever going to be able to compete on that level or bring those types of players in in the prime is if somebody did come in and put a lot of money in. If it was a local businessman who had loads of money to, to burn and they came in and did that, I might, I might feel a bit differently about it. A bit like when John Hall did it in Newcastle or 15 years ago or whatever. Um, but at Sunderland, it, it would have to be some sort of shake or something like that because the money they'd have to pay them to come and to live up here would be, you know, astronomical. So I don't know. I'd like to think I'd like to think that I wouldn't want it to happen, but if it did happen, I'd probably enjoy it for a bit. But it, you'd have that niggling thing in the back of your mind all the time, kind of going, "Oh, it's not quite right," or "We haven't earned it." This is exactly the point. This is exactly the point that I always make. Yeah, you haven't earned it, have you? You know, but then it's a vicious circle. It's like you can't re- without the money, you can't earn it on the pitch because you need the players to compete. Um, there's been exceptions in recent times, I guess, in the league. 
you know, Southampton last season could have done a bit better than they probably finished. And then, you know, Newcastle a few years ago finished fifth. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to think off the top of my head of teams in recent time who've, you know, cut challenge in the top six or seven um, without spending a lot of money. Maybe Everton, but they've spent a lot of money at times rather than sort of splurges. Um, yeah. Well, talking of uh, more money than sense, um, one of our favourite people that we've always discussed is Connor Wickham. And uh, this 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 summer, he um, he went on an outrageous holiday, didn't he? How much was he spending on champagne? Eighteen grand on a bottle or something like that. Yeah. Uh, think, what was going on there? I think he probably got it for free, but I think it was some sort of marketing exercise, to be honest, um, via the Daily Mail. Who I think they a lot of the stories if you Google the beach resort that it was in Marbella. Um, they, I think there was a lot of stories centered around that. So obviously there was some sort of arrangement there where somebody goes here, does something, and then they put it in the paper and it gets their name all over. That would be the cynic in me that would suggest that. Um, I wasn't that bothered. I mean, he's on holiday. and do what he wants. He's got a lot of money. He's a footballer. You know, so what? Like, then he was in the same You would, though. Like, he's... he's- yeah, he's he's similar age to me. And if I was on what is what's he on twenty five thirty thousand pound a week? If I was earning that much money, I'd be, be more, yeah. Well, I'd, I'd be spending it. Yeah, I mean, it's nothing like to him. It's just like buying, I don't know, a normal bottle of champagne probably to somebody on a similar wage to what I'm on. So, I mean, a lot of people get very precious about about the situation. I mean. Capitalism's issue, isn't it? Not <laughs> not to get there into that debate, but that's probably the main reason why these things happen. It's because there's a lot of money in football, so the assets can charge a, a premium for the services. So that's just the way it is. Um, fair play to him. You know, what I say. Fair play. Well, you know, he wasn't. You know, he wasn't hurting anyone, was he? And if any, I think apparently the the, the truth in the story was that he actually didn't drink any himself. And that he was sharing it with people who were there, and he actually shared it with the staff, apparently, which is uh, the story that I heard. So I don't know, I don't know how true that is. Um, but you know, I've been critical of Wigan as a player over the years, but you know, last last uh, back in the last season, he seemed to, pretty much saved you last season, didn't he? Yeah, he seemed to finally turn up, and he's a bit unlucky to find himself not playing through the middle um, this term, considering Fletcher's been. A little bit insipid, so um, yeah, he's probably unfortunate. He's been filling on that sort of left side. It'll be interesting now. Alvarez is fit to see if Alvarez might come in there, or Jackarini's fit now, who's actually playing the nice Ridley. He's back, so there's two areas there. Maybe Fletcher might drop out, and Wigan will go through the middle, and uh, Jackarini might take over that left side, and Alvarez in behind, or vice versa. I mean, we've got a lot of options in there. I think that's the thing with the Barini thing. I mean, it would have been good to have him, but we kind of don't really need him, you know, because we've got Johnson, Buckley, Alvarez, Jaggerini, Fletcher, Wigan, and Alvador across the front. So we've got a lot of options. So, yeah, it would have been interesting did to see. see um, did you see Josie Alvador's website over the summer in which it, what 
which it called him one of the most lethal uh, footballers uh, in the history of the Premier League or something similar. Yeah, yeah. They have good publicists, footballers. <laughs> I think that was something that changed when... We, we like we like Jordy, like, I think. He's kind of become a bit a little bit of a cult hero. Um, that's what happens at Sunderland when he's sort of a bit rubbish. But I mean, he's all. I mean, he looks good for America. I mean, when he plays for America, he looks great. And to be fair, he's come back in the start of this season. He's been quite bright. He's been used as like an impact substitute. So he's been coming on for the last twenty minutes and trying to stretch the back four. Um, so it's been quite interesting to see him, and he seems to be enjoying it. Um, and it's weird because often players who are perceived to have flopped. They don't really stick around after the first season. They'll be they'll be peddled off in the summer and a cup price deal, you know, back to where they're comfortable. I mean, Jack Rini did okay last season. His actual product was quite good. I mean, he scored about five goals, quite a few assists. Um, out the door, scored twice all season in all competitions. Although his general play in some games is very good, but his confidence just seen ebb away. And they two players, maybe you would have thought, oh, they'll just leave. Um, but they've stayed and they seem quite refreshed and yeah, I don't know, there's something, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see out the door do a bit better this season. I mean, it'd be, I guess, you know, some would argue it's hard not to do worse than he did, but, you know, if he gets a role in the team as some sort of impact substitute and he's happy with that, he could definitely do some damage to defences later on because he can stretch teams, he's quite quick and he's quite physical, so it'd be nice to see some of the finishing he's shown for the US for, for us. And you've had three games so far this year then. I mean, you've had West Brom, um, United and QPR. Um, how are they, how did they go and, and what's, what are you, what are you looking for from this game against us on Saturday? Um, well, in generally the game so far, in Man United I thought we were a better side and we were lucky not to win. It was game, like a bit of a game of two halves on against West Brom. I thought they dominated the first half and we were better in the second. And then QBR was just one of those things where we had a lot of the ball and we couldn't break them down and we didn't defend a set piece and got punished. So Tottenham game, seemed to play better against team better teams. Um, they were a bit more expansive, um, a bit more aggressive. So... If we got a draw, how did you do against? Um, how did you do against uh, Sun? Uh, not Sunderland, sorry, Southampton last season. What was it like uh, playing against Pochettino? Was there was there any sort of joy for you there? Well, the, we beat them twice in the cup, um, in the FA Cup and the League Cup. Um, we drew under De Canio. Um, we were winning one nil, and they they scored an equaliser with about two minutes to go, and then. We played them at home in the league and they battered us for about 20 minutes. And this, they were 2-0 up and then we managed to get back into it and we drew the game 2-2 and finished the stronger. So we won beaten against Southampton last season. Two draws and two wins. So we did all right. Um, but, you well, know, this... Put that... <laughs> Southampton and... 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool. Oh, put that right. Tom in the cup, he did feel the weekend side on both occasions, really, so... I think they were very annoyed about that. In the league, his first 25, 30 minutes against uh, Salam at home, they were they were absolutely brilliant and they could have been three or four up. Um, the Tottenham, they were a funny team. When I watch them, I just thought, I always think against the teams like us, you know, should really brush us aside. Um, but I always seem to get hammered off the teams sort of at the top of the league. You seen to go like as an outside looking in. You seen to go through spells where you have the one of the top teams just has the wood over you, and every time you seem to get battered. It's like I remember Chelsea a few, fair few years ago. Every time you played Chelsea, you seemed to get hammered, and then recently Man City. I think didn't you get beaten five off Man City or something on two occasions at home in recent succession, and then Liverpool seemed to have sort of sort of be able to just pick you apart last season and. Obviously, they beat you three 0 didn't they? Recently, am I right? Well, yeah. Um, last season wasn't great. I think I came onto your podcast and and spoke about that at some length about what we went through last year. Yeah, uh, I think this year's a bit different for us because again we've changed manager and he's just starting to put his system in. And because he's a a manager who's got such a clearly identifiable mm-hmm. identifiable. Uh, system, it's going to take a while for the players to fully learn every aspect of it before. And I think the case against Liverpool was, if did, if, you, if you saw the game, it wasn't a, an actual spanking in that they completely outplayed us. We had chances throughout that match. We were we were making things here and there. Uh, the difference was that, that they're three years into learning their system under their manager and we were five games. So they were always going to have that extra bit of edge. Um, so I was... I wasn't really surprised that we lost. I think the scoreline was slightly flattering for them. Although, you know, when you take your chances, you probably deserve it. But um, we we probably could have done better there. Um, so, would you be would you be happy with the draw? Is that what you, what you said? 
Yeah, I think I would be. I mean, if we'd have beaten QBR, you know, it makes a draw definitely more palatable, but a draw wouldn't be a bad result at all against Tottenham. Um, it would be a good result. Um, and there's plenty of games left. So at the start of the season, if somebody offered me a draw against Tottenham in both games, I'd snap my hands off. Um, what's the um, what's the aim for the season? Um, is it is it just to stay up comfortably? Um, you know, consolidate. I think start to build something under Poyet. Um, hopefully, you'll stay for a couple of years um, and try and put something in place. Not have a massive turnover of players at the end of the season and in, in January. Um, and consolidate. I mean, we've been consol. It feels like we've been trying to consolidate for about seven years. Um, you know, I think we've got the right manager. Um, you know, the the cups last season were, you know, a really excellent, like little sort of side story. Um, you know, if somebody had said to you at the start of last season, no, you'll finish fourteenth and get to a cup final, then. You just again, you would have just gone, yep, yes, please, um, and that's what happened in the end, in spite of the, you know, the drama at the beginning, and then that mid, that sort of mid to late section where we were bottom of the league with five games to go and seemingly no hope, and then somehow managed to get out of it. Um, so it t- last season was the best worst season, you know, it was one of those strange ones. This season, I'd be happy with the you know thirteenth, just eke in there and try and. You know, play some nice stuff, develop a bit, and then kick on. If I think we're three or four players away from being tenth and upwards, but getting those three or four players is always the issue. Um, just to finish, then we've had a couple of really good questions in from the listeners. Um, I'm just going to put them into one large question, and you can answer them both at the same time. Uh, the first one's just a yes or no: is um, is Mauricio Tarico still there? Um, and the second one is, in Sol Campbell's book, I'm not sure if you're aware of it or not, he um, described quite a length suffering some horrendous racism at Roker Park. Um, were you there? Do you have an, Is there any truth to that? Because, I mean, if anybody else said it, you'd be likely inclined to, to kind of believe him straight away. But with, with Sol Campbell, and uh, probably a bit biased here because of who he is, yeah. with, with him especially, he... He, he tends to cry wolf more often than not, and, and and he enjoys hyperbole in 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 order to kind of self promote. But from from an actual fan who may have been there or may have had friends there or what have you, is that something that Sunderland fans have have been aware of when he made those claims? Um, Torigo is still there, so yes, he is. He's doing a very good job of an animal, actually. Um, the Campbell thing. Did. <laughs> It's a can of worms because a lot of Sunderland fans were very unhappy when he made these comments because it's easy to, you know, point the finger without any evidence. And when you start, like, you know, it's like that quote in Jaws, isn't it? You say Barracuda, everyone says, hey, what? You say Shark, and you got a panic on their hands on your 4th of July. So it was like as soon as you start accusing people of being racist, and it's like, it's like you know, it is. it was... The way he put it across, it was the whole ground. I wasn't at the game, but the game was on television. I think Tottenham won 4-1 and Klinsman scored and Gary Bennett, our captain, who was black. The day got sent off for handballing on the line. That was quite a famous sort of moment at that time for Sunderland fans. Um, you know, at the time, 
I wasn't there, so I'm just guessing. I bet you there probably was a few people shouting racist abuse because it was, what, 1984? And it would be naive to think that that didn't happen. Um, it might have happened um, on a very, very, very small scale. I don't know, though, because I'm, ge- I'm guessing. Um, what I would say is him accusing basically the whole of Roger Park of, you know, racially abusing... That, 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 that was the way in which it was written. Um, that's the way in which it's, it's come across when he's had it in yeah. his book. He, he pretty much described it as a, a large majority. It's not one or two idiots because yeah. that's that's believable. You you get one or two idiots everywhere, no matter who you support, no matter what ground in the country it is, it's always going to be one or two idiots. But he he played it off to be a you know a, a, a yeah. virtually a lynching. Well, what what I would say is that I'd I'd, I'd suggest that. It, it wasn't the amount of people saying it that he thought it, he that there were. Um, you know, that, I think that's the the thing. It's impassions people as you, and it puts it sets things back. And John Barnes being guilty of it as well at times is when you generalize on a serious issue, you and ostracize people who are innocent, then it creates a backlash. And the, the the real issue of the racism gets muddied completely. And it isn't dealt with properly, um, you know. And people have got to be really sensible about what they say and approach it maturely. And I think, like Saul Campbell, what he's the way he's approached the situation has been appalling. And the cynic would suggest that he just said it at the time in order to sell a few more copies of his book. Um, and he might he might stand up and say, you know, I'm not black and I've never been racially abused as a white person and if you're at you know on the touchline and three or four idiots are in the clock stand paddock shouting racial abuse at you in the in that five or ten seconds it might feel like um the whole ground is racially abusing you you might feel like that that's how you may it may feel like everybody is doing it and i i don't know how i would feel if that happened to me because it's never happened but it's just you've got to be very careful about things like that and approach it properly. And you know the way it came out, it was sort of a, a bit immature. That, that's what I would say. And I'm sure there's a video or whatever kicking around of the game because it was live on BBC. So, well, um, that's a very diplomatic answer of you, Gareth. I think you've got a, a job in PR waiting for you <laughs> if you haven't already. I haven't. No. Um, I think that's. Um, I think that's um, just about us for the night. If you, um, you you have any questions for us at all. Um. Well, Pochettino, big. I'm a big fan of him. I thought he was excellent at Southampton, and kind of get the feeling that Poyet Sunderland is a good match as it, it's turned out. I feel as though that Pochettino is the right man to take Tottenham on. Do you, is the early impression that he's going to finally bring what you've been looking for 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 a long time you'd hope so um, but then it's always the hope that kills you with Tottenham I mean we've we've had so many false dawns now that uh, you you kind of worrying whether or not the sun is ever going to rise um, it's um, he's, he's making all the right noises he's, he's doing all the right things and although he said the exact opposite Tim Sherwood really isn't a tough act to follow, um, so he's um, he seems to have, have united the fan base a little bit more. He seems to be actually um, buying players for a system, and he seems to be working well with the existing ones. I mean, 
Um, I think he's looked out with the fact that the the seven lads we bought in last summer have all had a, a year now to try and settle in a little bit more. So hopefully we'll we'll see that little bit more out of Soldado. We've already seen more of Lamella in these opening games than we did in the entirety of last summer. He's he's looked fantastic and he really looks. I mean, the difference between him now and then is essentially that he's he's fully fit. So if he manages to to bed in this system and and have a couple of decent cup runs, I think this this year is pretty much. For me, at least, I'm I'm quite happy to to kind of write it off as a no pressure season, and just it's entirely about um, bedding in his ideology. I think the season I would compare it to is if you remember Rodgers' first year at Liverpool yeah. when they, they finished about seventh, and every now and then they'd lose the odd dodgy game where they wouldn't perform properly. But what the patience they had in Rodgers, the, the the time they gave him with the players and the fact that he had really nothing else to worry about with, with just a couple of cup runs to try and make the most out of. He um he, he's reaping those rewards now with the fact that the players are used to doing what he wants to and they're they're much better off for it. So I think you you almost need that one year where you where you learn to do everything and you kind of rewrite what you'd had before, forget everything that had come previously and just kind of pick up everything you can from the new manager and then as the second and third seasons come, it's um it's a it's a it's a larger and a, a longer term project. But often the problem with Tottenham managers is there's never really a second or third season some of the time. So um, the key word is patience for me. Um, but hopefully it works out better this time. But you've always kind of you've always kind of got that little niggling of of pessimism and doubt, unfortunately, um, with with what you've seen previously. Um, I'll happily be proved wrong no matter what. I think my worry about Pochettino as a supporter would be when when I looked at him Southampton on the pitch and everything, excellent. But I just felt as though he's never really he never really bought into Southampton as a club. It was always a stepping stone to something else. Um, it was quite a clinical um, arrangement. Um, I don't know. If that's it, if that'll be the case, Tottenham obviously Tottenham uh, more recently more successful in a in a, a bigger club, you'd argue definitely. So you know, it'd be interesting to see if he you know develops a connection with the club, or whether or not he you know continues in that very much job like um, sort of mentality, and is is purely focused on you know almost success on the pitch means success for himself. Um, I don't know. I think you know, quite like a connection between the the, the supporters and, and 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 the manager, or a certain player or whatever is quite nice to have. And I just feel as though with Pochettino, he's quite a cold person. I think um, I think the difference between what he had at Southampton and, and what he's going to have at Tottenham is that he, he he seems to have friends in high places at Southampton, and that gave him a little bit of a, a freer rein to kind of conduct himself as he wished. There, he was. Um, He's probably a, a slightly bigger figure in the club than just a manager. Whereas at Tottenham, he's he's got a clearly defined role as head coach. There's he, there's no chance of him ever locking horns and coming off better with with Levy. Um, I mean, we've we've already made him. I mean, he does the the awful Spurs TV interviews every week, which are just not worth anyone's time at all, but he's been forced to do all of the social media type things. He's he's, he's showing his face whenever the, the club wants him to. Um, we've made him speak English straight away. Um, there's none of the, 
translator business he got away with previously just because I think we because Levy tries to take a back seat so much his his managers really are the face of the club while they're there um, so he's he seems to be conforming in every manner we want him to so far um, obviously the, the, the opposite worry to him him failing is that if he does really well there's a possibility of that that careerism as you say that is probably existent in all managers now might just take over and if we if we don't qualify for the Champions League within a season or two then you know that that five year contract gets a little less uh, ironclad and he can he can jump ship whenever he, he feels necessary so it's um football's not a not a long term business anymore is it people come and go uh, as the wind blows so it's there's no point i mean we we had a discussion previously about just little things like getting players' names on the back of your shirts and just there's no point anymore. It's it's just it's not it's not what football's about. I mean, the, probably the the last the last sort of bastion of loyalty we we're ever going to see at Tottenham was the the likes of of Ledley King. I mean, the, the other players that showed that sort of passion, like Michael Dawson and even Sandro to a small extent, have, have gone now. So the, the the personality of the club is is slowly going. But um, in its place, uh, I think they're trying to exchange a tiny bit of success. So we'll we'll, we'll see how that goes. I guess that's, that that is the great contradiction of modern football, isn't it? Everyone that that whole thing about you know everyone's talking about projects and um, you know the buzzwords like that sort of um, you know systems and you know these ideologies and through a football club and all this kind of thing. But none of the players are involved in it very long, and the managers even shorter in most cases. Um, so it's weird when you do hear managers talk about projects, but the project for them—I mean, you see in five years, Pochettino. I mean, let's be realistic; it just isn't going to happen, is it? I mean, it would be—I'd be incredibly surprised if Gus Poyet was still at Sunderland in eighteen months, never mind five years. It's just, just the way football is. Well, the funny thing at Tottenham is that the last time we thought we were actually hiring a short-term manager was Redknapp, and he's the one that managed to stick around the longest because he, he had the best squad, essentially, and we we never really hit the heights we should have done with that squad because Redknapp stuck, stuck around for longer than he should have done. Um, I mean, the last season he was in charge, I, I could talk about for hours just because of... We did so well up until a point. Um, we were so many points ahead. I think it was 12 or 13 points ahead in, in third place. And the England thing started and he took his eye well and truly off the ball. He was pretty much deciding which photos of Sandry wanted on his desk at St George's Park at one point. And it cost us. We, we completely took our, our foot off the ball and, and it was all gone. Uh, we, we blew that lead quite spectacularly finished fourth and uh, Chelsea won the Champions League and that yeah. season will, will probably for a long time be the, the huge what if for us because we'll not know had we finished third and had we been in the Champions League again and and had Redknapp not thought he was going to be England manager whether or not it would have would have worked out any better so um, I'm of the opinion we'd probably be in a, a similar place uh, now just because I'm I'm like that whereas some people mm. seem to think we'd have kicked on into this complete title challenging outfit but um, we'd have still lost the players we lost at the end of the day there's there's no turning down the money Real Madrid would have come and offered us so it's um, I think 
but Redknapp is just an absolute disgrace. Like, I know he, he did all right. Well, he did got Tottenham in the Champions League and all that, but the amount of times, you know, the mask is pulled off and everyone seems to, like, in the mass media anyway, you know, all his mates and all that, it just gets completely ignored. It's just infuriating to, to watch. Um, you know, and even Fernandez, you know, today was mentioning, you know, if England came back for Redknapp, he wouldn't stand in the way. It's like, well, what? Like, you know, the, the, that from an outside look in, that was an absolute car crash, that situation with Redknapp. And like you say, choosing the photos on the desk in St George's Park is absolutely spot on. It was absolutely embarrassing to watch. Like, he was basically sort of, you could almost see him in his eyes, like, rehearsing for his first English press conference. Every time he did a post-mass press conference for Tottenham around the time, he was like, well, you know, it's I'm not going to comment on that and all that. But you could see it in his eyes. He was like that sort of, like, oh, well, everyone knows I'm going to get this England job. And he didn't. And, it, it like you say, just, like, as a supporter, like, for my club, you know, he if we'd had the relative success that like you had with the Champions League and stuff, maybe it would be difficult there to criticise him or take a step back. But, like, as an outside look in, I just thought his behaviour was just disgusting. And, you know, I, I thought it was brilliant that he basically got, you know, that he got sacked at Tottenham. Like, he didn't get, he didn't get, the, like, the way that it was reported, it wasn't even like he got sacked. It was like, well, they just decided that he wouldn't, see out the final year of his contract well you mean he got sacked then well um the way in which it actually played out um was that we offered him we stuck by him when his trial went on for fraud uh, there was a member a high member of our board there in the in the courtroom every day with him uh, to show the club support of him um I, I imagine we probably helped him out financially in that time in one way or another mm. um there was a contract on the table for him for another three or four years uh, before Christmas, and he, he wanted to wait off before signing it, um, obviously because he thought he was going to get the England job. Um, the day he got acquitted, we beat Newcastle 5-0 at home, which you, you probably enjoyed. Um, he um, he Then after that, the, the wheels slowly came off because I think 24 hours after that, Capello left England. Uh, because of John Terry's, um, I think that was the racism scandal he left for that time, rather than the shagging his mate's wife. Um, <laughs> you forget how many times he kind of left. There might have been fellows reading up and Terry should stay together. You don't know. Yeah, so he um, he he that kind of was the catalyst for that. And um, then towards the end of the season, once Hodgson had got the job publicly. He went back to Levy with his agent, who's the same agent that Wayne Rooney has, and Wayne, you know the two times that Wayne Rooney, Wayne Rooney's extorted Manchester United. They essentially tried to pull the same stunt on Daniel Levy and went back with the same contract he'd given him, but with improved terms, so more years on it and more money. And uh, Daniel Levy at the time, his wife was extremely ill, so he was they were trying to, to strong arm a man who was, you know, in a very fragile place at the moment, uh, weren't kind about it at all and were essentially trying to take the club for a ride and Levy told him where to go and I think that that was a fantastic, fantastic thing yeah. for us to do. And um I was I was pleased at the time because all all you got from Fleet Street was obviously Harry's friends sticking up for him saying this is a disgrace, look at what he's done for this club. Um but a large amount of Tottenham fans, um would die, and I mean, you get the odd Muppet still who pine after him, which just is completely bizarre. Um, but it's still, I'm, I'm, I was, uh, 
I was extremely happy, and it was one of one of Levy's finest hours. That, to be honest, um, when he got rid of him, it just showed that there's no one man bigger than the club, and we'll, we'll choose to go on in a different direction if you're gonna if you're gonna try and treat us like that. Definitely, I think you know, even a little thing you see Redknapp do, and you know, there's bits and you know, little footage of you know when you know when he gets hit in the head with a ball at training, and he just loses his temper and. You know, when someone asks him about him being a wheeler dealer and he loses his temper, and then there's another one going around where somebody asks him about recent results in the Premier League and he again sort of flies off the handle with the interviewer and stuff. And it's like, this is this, this is the real person here, not this like cheeky, chappy sort of, you know, man motivator who, you know, gets results. I mean, you look at Redknapp's records over the years and what he won the FA Cup um, with, with Portsmouth. While no. bankrupting them. Yeah, while bankrupting them, yeah. And then, you know, every club he goes to, I mean, he did the same thing. Like, he wrecked Southampton, you know, West Ham weren't in a great situation when he left. You know, it's, it, it's just one of the bizarre, one of the biz- most bizarre sort of, you know, conundrums of English football is, you know, Harry Redknapp and the fact that he just does this stuff and every like there's a large proportion of people who just kind of ignore it and it's it's weird. So I'm pleased to hear that uh, some Tottenham fans were delighted when he was bin because uh, I think uh, so was I. It was it was great to see, especially after the whole England thing the way he went on. It was just pathetic. It would have been, and, un- uh, would have been unbearable had he got that in the end. Oh, yeah. Don't even want to think about that. Well, um, thanks very much for your time, Mitt. That was fantastic. It was nice speaking to you as always. And, um, good luck for the weekend. Hopefully, um, hopefully it goes our way, but hopefully not not too not too heavily. <laughs> You'll, I know you'd love it if you smashed your seven in or something. To be honest. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't be. Uh, I wouldn't be complaining. <laughs> All right, cheers, Gareth. No problem. So thanks to Gareth for coming on again. Um, we've got Sunderland, as I say, on Saturday. So what do you make of that game? Is that one we should be looking to win quite convincingly? Oh, I don't know about quite convincingly. I um, it's one of those games every season where I kind of I feel uneasy about it. I um, I, I don't know. Maybe that maybe that kind of feeds into to to kind of being a bit of a soft touch on the road. Um, but um, I don't I, I don't think um, I think. On a theoretical basis, yeah, it's a game you should win. It's a game you're going to be disappointed if you lose. But I um um I would be concerned about what Liverpool did to uh, to some of those players, um, especially someone like Lamella. I think that all the good he did against QPR, I want to see how he reacts to having what he, he did not look happy towards the end of Liverpool. Um, and it's just you know it's part of his learning curve. He reacted well for Argentina, though. He did. He did. He played really well for Argentina. But I, I just the, the Premier League. It just looked as if. He, um, I remember writing after after the QPR game that it that Lamella is not a binary contact. He's not either off form or on form. He's someone that's going to have to grow gradually into the league, irrespective of QPR. And Liverpool kind of showed he's not quite ready for the pace of it. When it's really quick, his use of the ball is a little bit hesitant sometimes. And I want to see how he does in a you know game away from home where you know we're we're a, we're a draw for Sunderland's fans. Uh, their players are going to want to you know. Um, you know, get there. I think that'll be their, their first win of the season, first home win of the season, first win of the season, even. Yeah, first win uh, of the season. Of the season. Yeah, drawn twice and lost once. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and, and so 
yeah, it's a game we should win. It's a game that you would... I think it's easier just to say it's a game you don't want to lose. It's really negative and it's a really conservative way of looking at it, but you know, it's, it's a process. You want these players to kind of gradually feel more comfortable and put the Liverpool behind them. And, um, and yeah, I'd like just to see uh, a little bit of... I don't know, just us playing in a... In, in a coherent way, and you know, with, with, with uh, sort of just yeah, this isn't going well. <laughs> you have to edit that out, right? Well, if I if I inter if I interrupt you, yeah, um, please, please. The way I the way the way I compare this season to it is the first season Rodgers had at Liverpool, where the pressure for results wasn't really there because they were losing the occasional silly game that otherwise yeah. the the fans may have got on the back for. Um, um, and I said this season, if if Pot- if Pochettino's going to be here for a season or three or four, then the most important thing he has to do is establish his, his tactical identity and his philosophy as soon as possible. Yeah. And it may take a season to do that. So is that something that you'd subscribe to? Would you Is that a season at Liverpool you'd, you'd compare this one at Tottenham to, that we have to, this is more about us identifying ourselves rather than us actually uh, kicking on in, in terms of fixtures and, and, and victories? Yeah, I think it's a balance between the two. Because if you look at that Rogers season, I think it's a, it's a great parallel that you drawn. But, but at the same time, like you look at the fan reaction at Liverpool to Rogers during that time. I mean, you know, there's a couple of Liverpool supporters who wouldn't be who wouldn't be uh, that proud of the way they responded um, during that first 12 months. But it's it's, it's got to be a balance between the supporters seeing that there is something to have a, a hope in, and there is the direction, there is something that's being um, being worked towards, uh, and you know, and performing well. Um, and I think, you know, as long as you can go there, as long as at the end of the Sunderland, as long as you can go, okay, well, even if they lose, if you, if you say, okay, they're lost, but they lost because they were trying to do this. And it's as a, it's a, it's a product of, I don't know, not, not quite knowing the system properly, as opposed to you know, some of the away performances that we saw last season, where you just thought you, you, you saw the players walk out the tunnel, you think you're just not going to win this game. Um, and, as long as, yeah, it, it goes back to what I said earlier. It's, it's about, um, you know, seeing some progress. And as long as, you know, the end of Saturday, you can say that about Tottenham, then, then it's, uh, you know, then it's just, it's it's part of the, uh, it's just part of the process, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, the, the thing it feeds into is having patience, isn't it? Which, yeah. uh, across the level at Tottenham, through the fans in certain sections and, the board especially patience isn't something we're particularly synonymous synonymous with recently. No, so no. it's um Well if you remember um it, that's sorry to interrupt you I if you remember when this first hand up, though honestly I remember I went to or I I'd given up my season ticket by then, but I went to a couple of those early games and um the atmosphere at Whitehall Lane was dreadful. I mean it was just within I remember I was at the um I think it was West Brom at home. And, um it was, uh, yeah, the, the, the James Morrison scored an equaliser in the stoppage time, I think. And and there was just this anxiety right from the beginning. And it was just, you know, it was kind of, there, there are still, I, I don't want to be accused of, of football fans, and this doesn't include, um, this isn't really directed to the majority, but there are some who just think, you know, you seem to have seen that the moment a new manager walks through the door, everything becomes better. And everything becomes, a, you know, a complete realisation of that manager's vision. And it just, it drives me crazy. I think, I think adversely with AVB, it was the exact opposite. I think people, as soon as he was appointed, were ready for him to fail because the the, the media um, in the sun and what have you they have a, a remarkable ability to 
to set a narrative right. about somebody and because of what he'd done at Chelsea, which some of which was his own fault, some of which genuinely wasn't, um, people had already bought into the fact that he was this fraudulent young foreigner who was just chanting his way through the Premier League rather than being somebody who was going to be able to actually achieve something with the club. And before he'd even play, uh, managed the game for us, uh, a section of the support had, had broken away and you know, were, were pining after Harry Redknapp after a game or so. And, and the, because of the fractious nature of the support base, he, was, he came into a club that was never really there uh, making it a, an environment in which to, to succeed. And so he did make mistakes across his time at the club, but it was, um, it was an unfortunate time for him as well. I don't think it was entirely his fault whatsoever. Oh, I, I agree with that completely. I, I think he was um, he was he was portrayed bang on with that comment about media. He was portrayed as a flavour of the month and nothing more. And his achievements, I, I know Portugal is an inferior league, but you know his he still wanted the best. He still wanted treble uh, in a single season. And 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 he um, yeah he he was definitely um, labouring against some pretty pretty um, pretty aggressive media posturing. From a couple of people, <laughs> um, yeah. But he, uh, uh, n- namely N- Neil Ashton, who you're a, you're a massive fan of. He's your your favourite newspaper journalist, isn't he? Uh, I knew you'd bring that up. Um, you well, I. It's not that I, I don't. What I dislike about Neil Ashton is not necessarily what Neil Ashton writes. It's just that he's not very sincere. He writes. He, I, I'm guessing. I don't know this, so I'm not going to get any of you sued. But. Um, it, it, it almost appears sometimes as if <laughs> we're trying on dangerous ground. It appears as if sometimes uh, he's part of a he's instructed the you know to write things which he doesn't necessarily believe in. Now whether that that's just something that comes through in his writing or I don't know, but it, it, I, I don't like insincerity in the game. I don't like you know give give an example. Given the paper, <laughs> given the paper in which he belongs to, um, I don't think that'd be too far from the truth. In all honesty, I think. If they can, they can put their horrible talons into an agenda and and force somebody to put five hundred words of copy behind it, then they will. Um, and yep. you know what? He's he's probably just doing his job at the end of the he day. He is. Yeah. Um, he does make a bit of he does make a, a bit of an ass out of himself sometimes when he had that set to with AVB in the press conference. He, he didn't come out of it at all well, um, and he, he he did write quite a bitter piece afterwards, which. I imagine that that was a sign of the man as much as anything else as well. But um, moving away from very, him before, very, we, we very, probably very do get yeah. You know, you know, you know. Before we do get sued by the mail. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first and only time I'll ever appear on this podcast. Um, <laughs> I um the, the thing about that was that just briefly is that I um I I was an, I was a bit of Spurs apologist, and um I think retrospectively I I was purely by chance I actually um I. I moved out of London about a year ago, and um, the day after that Newcastle game, on the first game of the season, I, I met Andre Villas-Burst. I, I was walking through London, and I w- he was on the other side of the street with all his coaching staff, and I kind of bounded over the road in like a, a childish fit of enthusiasm to say hello without really thinking what I was doing. I think I, 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 he probably thought I was about to mug him because he's quite, he's like sort of five foot eight or something, and he's the nicest guy. Uh, he's just the most polite, courteous person. And I think that was the point at which I lost my um, impartiality. It's just, I, I, and so when, when sort of you have like someone like Neil Ashton or Martin Samuel, and you know, it just it felt very personal. You're just sort of attacking this. I don't know. I, uh, I think I lost my judgment. <laughs> 
the first time I saw a photo of him in a tight blue Tottenham suit looking That's... handsome as he was with <laughs> his, his hair and his beard. I, I was head over heels in love. I was I defended him to the hilt no matter what, probably more than I probably should have done. Uh, he was a he was a definite man crush for me. Yeah. Both, you know, his, his his tactical philosophy and the way in which he, he wants his teams to play is something that I very much buy yeah. into. Uh, perhaps his uh, ability to make that come across in a short period of time isn't the best. But um, I mean, I'm still somebody that 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 will quite staunchly say that there's Gareth Bale would not have left for the money he did and would not have become the player he did for Tottenham if Villas Boas wasn't aware enough to then build that team around him at Christmas uh, because we had no strikers playing and he shifted him in from one position to another. Obviously did some work one-on-one and and spent some great time with him on the training field because their relationship was clearly strong. And that season there, the making of the player was down to, in part, AVB knowing exactly what he was doing with that sort of talent. Yeah, you, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. I um, in a moment from that season that that said everything about the relationship between the two was when he um, you know, when 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 Bale scored that winner at Upton Park, West and he Ham. ran to Villas Boas, right? And you just thought, you know, okay, it's, it's a bit, you know, you, you can be cynical about it, and I guess modern fans are, but you're completely right. Bale, Bale was a very talented player before Villas Boas arrived, but there was he he went from being in that. You know, there's quite a large pool of very good players in Europe, always. He went from that grouping to becoming special within the space of eight or nine months. And I, I don't think you, you, you can possibly separate where Bale is now from, you know, uh, from Villas Boas. And um, I think one day Andre Villas Boas will be incredibly successful somewhere. I don't know where it was, where it will be even. And, um, you know, Tottenham, under the conditions, uh, that existed when he was at the club with, you know, the, the chairman being who he is and the expectations being what they were. I, 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 I don't think that I was, um, that was, that was his optimal environment for success, but one day, you know, being five or 10 years, he'll be, he'll be right amongst the coaching league and, um, you know, good luck to him. Well, I, I would agree with that. I mean, he's, he's 37, 38 years old now. The youngest manager to ever win the Premier League was 42 with Mourinho. So he's well behind there. Um, he's still learning his trade yeah. to, to a certain degree. Um, I don't think he's he's had the greatest luck with the, the clubs he's landed in since leaving Porto. I think Chelsea was Chelsea was a huge mistake, and it it was something that, as yeah. I say, would have cost him with the press at Tottenham as well. So it's gonna gonna be a while. Um, he'll probably he, he said he wants to work in as many different countries as possible with his young family and, and take them around, and then he wants to drive in the Dakar Rally at some point as well. So I mean, that's he, nice. Yeah, he seems like he's just just doing what what a man with a quite reasonable, well, reasonable, quite a large wage would would be doing. He's um, I wish all I the like best for him. Yeah, you know, be, he'll be he'll be driving the Dakar rally. He'll be listening to Sultans of Swing by Dire Straits. I suppose that's his favourite song. Uh, I saw some interview with him, and you know that, that's kind of that fits with you know your you know nice hair, good beard, Andre Villas-Boas image. That kind of sees sees what you'd imagine him to be like. So, yeah. If I uh, if I had to ask you for a, a score line against Sunderland, what would you what would you say? Against Sunderland, I I I think we will win. I um I look at I look, I, the the biggest thing I say about Sunderland is uh the the, the centre of their defence. I think um I mean this this will undoubtedly bite me on Monday, I guess, but um it's just no pace with John O'Shea and Wes Brown, and I think the way uh 
the way that front four, Charlie Adebayo, Eriksson, Mela move, and the way they use the ball, the way they're starting to interact with each other, I think they'd just be a bit too clever for them. Um, and again, I'm <laughs> prompting prompting to score a hatchet, but I mean, even with uh, the defensive issues which exist at Tottenham, uh, Connor Wickham uh, is, is not necessarily all Josie Alto, or, or they might um, uh, they signed Ricky Alvarez, haven't they? Um, yeah, I can't, I can't imagine he'll start, but I, I just don't see anyone there. That's it's not the same as you know when, when, before the Liverpool game. You thought, yeah, Sterling, Sturridge, Balotelli, that might be a problem. I don't get that same feeling from Sunderland. I don't see that they are. Um, we, we have weaknesses without question, but I'm not quite sure they're good enough to expose them. Um, sc- Scoreline, uh, put numbers to it. Ah, uh, for, for back up my words, um, I, I, I'd take us to you know. I um I think we'll score. I don't. I can't see that. Um, well, I'd say two one because we're, we're, something silly will happen at some point because Tottenham. Uh, so um, you know, Danny Rose will do something. Like that. <laughs> I, think he's, I think he's injured. We may get to see um, a signing. We may get to see Ben Davis. A signing that I take oh, full responsibility no. for. You do, do you? Explain yeah. it. T- tell me how. Well, Justify that. This podcast around a year ago, perhaps midway through last season, he was the left back that I identified and then virtually lobbied for months across Twitter and on this medium to sign uh, to points where I was uh, tweeting him from the Ruler Roost account, just saying, what's your shirt size so we can get it ready for next season and whatnot. <laughs> and... Um, by some some weird chance, it actually happened, and uh, the amount of tweets I got on the day he signed, just going, "How has this happened? You, were, I thought you were just taking a piss when you linked him with us." And I, he was a player I greatly admired, and I did so many tweets around the time that um, Luke Shaw was being banded around for thirty million, and the fact that that we got um, Davies, I believe, um, it's quite a shady deal actually because of uh, the way in which Swansea are trying to. Uh, fob off the Vaughan one to to get away with theirs, and that's that's another legal issue that I don't want to get into. But um, no. from Super what, Daily Mail and it, Swansea City at the exactly, same time. From uh, what from yeah. what I've been told and from what I understand at the moment, uh, Ben Davies came to us in a straight swap deal with uh, Gilfie Sigurdsson, and then we paid three million pounds for Vaughan. That's what I understand. Uh, Swansea sell it in a different manner, where the money went for Davies and Vaughan went for free, um, so that they don't have to pay the the add-on clause to, I think it's Utrecht, isn't it? Uh, perhaps I, I may have just pulled the Dutch club out of my ass there and, and tried to no, say... I think you're right. Um, and, uh, yeah, as I say, that's an ongoing legal matter, so I'm only, only posturing. I'm not... This is not definite, I'm saying. <laughs> but if, if, it does, if it does work out that we, we got Davies in a swap deal for a player who is circum to, you know, to requirement and... We didn't pay thirty million pounds for Luke Shaw when there's between the two of them. There's not really that much difference, I wouldn't say. Uh, Shaw might have that little bit more about him, but the fact that the the large difference between them in price tag is the fact that one's Welsh and one's English um, made me greatly happy. So I was, I was I thought that was a fantastic signing. Yeah, I think I, you you're right about that Shaw comparison because I think that if you um I, I, I I'm I'm a big Luke Shaw fan um. Well, I'm a big Luke Shaw family. He's about a stone lighter than he is at the moment. But um, he, the idea that he's worth three times as much as someone like Ben Davis is like a fundamentally sound defender, or will be in the future when it, with a little bit more, um, with a little bit, a uh, little bit, little bit more time, a little bit more Premier League exposure, is, is a bit silly. So I think it's a very good, very good, uh, yeah, very good deal. 
Um, I don't. I mean, it's it's, it's a surprising one because I I Sigurdsson, I can see the value. I I, I can hypothetically see why someone might value Sigurdsson and Davis at the same point. But you look at sort of what Davis could be to Tottenham. I mean, he's, he's theoretically someone you could plug in at left back and forget about for ten years. And that's sort of Sigurdsson is a bit more of a. I don't know. I mean, he's a talented footballer, but he he there's a there's something about him which there's not an awful lot of consistency to the way he plays, and there's not he does he he certainly has the capabilities to to win games. We we saw enough of that at Tottenham, but I don't know. I just um I, I, someone 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 at Swansea might need uh something might need slapping for that deal. Again, not again, not 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 to tempt uh, uh, Swansea <laughs> to. Bring any legal yeah. proceedings against me, uh, but from what I heard from people we speak to about Swansea on a regular basis, is that there was some internal politics there regarding um, Neil Taylor and Neil Taylor's agent, um, essentially right. saying that he had the larger contract of the two, and if uh, Ben Davies was going to stay at the club and be their number one, then uh, Neil Taylor was essentially going to kick up a bit of a fuss about that, and uh, he wanted to be their number one left back and play more games than he had done. Davies' chance came when Neil Taylor got injured, but um, I think it kind of Very solved. Thankful, yeah, he's, it solved a couple of, pro- of problems for Swansea. In one, in that they got in a player that they greatly needed with Sigurdsson, and solved a bit of a, a political issue with uh, a player unrest by getting rid of Davies. Um, I'm not obviously we don't know the, the contract in and out. They could have a, a 20 million sell-on clause or what have you on on that Davies deal. We, we're, we're not to know really, are we? Um, can, but, can, you, can you imagine? Can you imagine not selling? Can you imagine selling a player to Tottenham and not putting a sell-on clause in there? I mean, I, I mean, it, you know, given what you know about Levy, <laughs> what you got? Yeah. No. Well, the, the best thing uh, Levy ever did with one of those is when uh, Southampton were in their their most uh, their highest bit of um, financial trouble um, after we'd bought Bale a season or two afterwards. They had a, a I think a twenty-five percent stake in him, a real huge one, um, and because they had. Um, yeah, they had um, cash flow problems. They just needed liquid assets as soon as possible. And uh, he, he goes, "I'll give you two million pounds now, and we'll write that. Cl- we'll strike that clause out of his contract." And they were in no position to say no to it. So that that full eighty six plus million pounds, whatever it was, came came his way. So um, yeah. I think that's yeah, a, a, a good place to leave it. Um, obviously, um, how how can people follow you on Twitter and what's your website and whatnot? You can you can plug yourself. Uh, no, I don't know. I, I, well, I, the website is thepremierleagueal.com um, and uh, the Twitter handle is at Premier League Al. It's, um Why an hour? Yeah. To, I, you know what? I, I, as with everything to do with the website, I never really, I mean, it, the whole thing was an accident. I, I started writing about football as a, a bit of therapy around my then job. Um, and um, it just, you know, it could just have easily been the Premier League whale. To be honest, it was just it, it, it's something that seems quite smart and clever retrospectively, but I, I can't really take credit for any of it. It was just an accident, um, and uh, and yeah, it seemed to work out. So you know, <laughs> there really is nothing more to it than that. Oh, but no, like, did you not? Were you not tempted I, by like the Premier League honey badger or anything like that? Was there? No, I'm not clever enough for that. I would have been very smart, but I um I no I uh, I should you know what? I should I should I should invent a story about this. You know, come up with something really clever, really insightful that you know kind of uh, does a bit of personal PR for me. But no, it was um, it was just me being bored, me needing to do, me needing to create some separation from work, and um, yeah, eventually people started reading. So 
it was all good. Excellent. Thanks very much for, for coming on, Seb. You're welcome on. Yeah, cheers, time. Hopefully, no, hopefully, absolute pleasure. Hopefully next time Jack's here as well to speak to you and, and probably ridicule you in the in the way he does when whenever we have guests on. Um, <laughs> with us, uh, you can read all our content and everything when it goes up at SpursStatman.com. Uh, follow the, the boss man Jack at, um, Spurs, at SpursStatman. Uh, the podcast at RTRSSM and um, we'll we'll tweet out the links to all everything we do as you well know uh, so that's us for the week goodbye